This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. The Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 187, for February MMXX. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by... Professor Zoom Yukonori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. With unique celebrity guest perspectives to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Solomon Grundy don't understand. Entity Terraman. I'm not following either. Bizarro totally get it. I intend to participate in your podcast show of wonders. As if I wasn't nervous enough. Little Professor Man, mansplaining again. Accessing files. Experience the wonder. Bizarro. What in tarnation did you do? Adios, partner. He am Bizarro Terra Man. Goodbye. Of the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. Watch out, you square brain varmint. <laughs> Only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
Batgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, here we are. It's February. It's hard to believe that actually I've been rehearsing for a month now. The soft off book date, which means I have to have my lines memorized, happens Sunday. And the hard off book is the next Sunday. So man, it's been a whirlwind. And then of course, once we get into March, I'll be Whew, I'll be playing my part five times a week. So it's it's been pretty crazy and, and I've wanted to keep up with the podcast and so recording when I get a chance. So here we are. Now I will say something that I've been thinking about a lot has been the film Bombshell, which goes inside Richard Ailes and the stuff that went down, sexual harassment and things like that, and misconduct at Fox News. And I saw it the end of break, so beginning of January, and it's really been, it's sat with me for for a while now. And someone asked on Twitter, what do you not believe? And I said, oh, I absolutely believe it. And that's that's certainly not the issue. But I, I think it's interesting. Number one, Charlie's Theron did a wonderful job as, as Megyn Kelly. I think in any other year, potentially without Renee Zellweger being Judy Garland, I think that she would be a shoo-in for Best Actress. But I think that Renee is going to most likely get it for Judy. The Megyn Kelly character, which is weird to say that since she's a real-life person, I think is really complicated. I went with someone, and afterwards I asked what she thought, and she said, I don't know what to think about this because, yes, we're getting – we are getting – to expose something and and help these women out. But Fox News as a station has been, um, I'm trying to think of maybe how she phrased it, but, you know, hateful towards minorities and things like that. And I personally cannot, I cannot comment (laughs) on news stations and their sort of politics. I know generally, you know, who leans left, who leans right, but I don't watch the news. My parents are normally the ones who fill me in. I'm not really up to date on current events, though I do check the news a couple times a day at least, you know, via YouTube or um, during planning or something like that. So I couldn't really account for that. And it is true because even though you're for one particular group, that doesn't mean that, hey, you know, you're the savior person and you'd be for all of them. And if you're not for all of them, you can't just be raised up and, and praised for the one group that you are for. And Megyn Kelly, I think, is interesting because she... Even though Gretchen, I think, was the one who started this whole thing, Megyn Kelly is kind of the face of it. And so you look at her, but you can't call her a hero. And I think that the film does a good job of having her as a protagonist, but holding her accountable and asking, I think, some tough questions. And also, I think, giving her or showing her empathy because she was certainly in a tough position. And I know that um, even though she was a victim herself, she became close with Richard. And and so I think that was tough for her. And and no way am I excusing it, but I think we certainly have to show some empathy there. I The character I think that I, I liked the least was the fictional character that... Margot Robbie played. I'm trying to remember her name now. And I understood the purpose of having this particular character because from the very beginning, you could see how this sort of thing would happen. The beginning of it being preyed upon and then, oh, you're in this tough position. What do I do? And then having it just continue on. So you get to see that from the very beginning. So it's many people's stories, I think, wound up into one. The fact that they made her a Christian was interesting. And I had before I had seen the film, watched short little interviews from the three main leading ladies and and they were talking about 
their characters and margot robbie was saying like i'm glad to play a christian who's not naive and and you know and so i thought okay this should be interesting you know what is this like and i was kind of on board in the beginning and i i wondered you know how it was going to how she's going to be portrayed and then she ended up <laughs> sleeping with a kate um what's her name kate mckinnon kate something something you know from snl and i thought what exactly is going on right now and the faith part i feel like didn't have much of a place in there which i guess it's you know to what extent are you defined by your faith or you know in your order of identity descriptors where is that you know so i i don't know necessarily that that christian was like her number one thing that that was just you know a little <laughs> a little odd i mean you know you can have her have a romance with with uh with kate's character but i i didn't really see how that all fit in there it was that was very strange so like i said i feel like that one was not as worked out but what i did like about that particular character is that she held Megan accountable because once she asked that girl, you know, has anything happened? And I think the girl asked, did that happen to you? And she also says, you know, why didn't you speak up? And I think Megan says something like, what could I have done? And so, of course, Megan could have potentially been a voice to begin this way back when and, and prevent certain victims. And I think in the deposition scene, you also see that because Megan. I don't remember what letter she was, but later on, she's like, that means there are so many such and such, you know, how many were there? And I think there was that realization that she very much could have. But at the same time, we all know that I think it's easier. It's not easy, but it's easier than it was to speak up. But way back then, man, you could have gotten kicked out and, and not as many people would, I think be on your side. So that's, that's really interesting. So yeah, just kind of working through the person of Megan and and to what extent do we, uh, do we maybe victimize, villainize, I guess I should say people who don't speak up, you know, from fear, what, to what extent do we do that? Do we think that they're a traitor to a cause or perhaps, um, women to what extent should we show empathy that was another question i I've, that i've been thinking about and then something that really has struck me is just men in there because there were several sections in that movie that were just kind of had to turn away and oh what's happening here because i just think to myself and i'm gonna i'm gonna it's gonna sound like i'm generalizing and saying all men and i certainly don't mean that but let's just say so men we know that we are creatures of desire right we are built to be that and i've been told by several people that um i guess men have it harder they're very visual it's easier to i guess tantalize them than perhaps for women so let's just say that i've been told that several times so i'm thinking okay so let's go into this film then well I don't just the fact that there are these men in power and men anywhere that know self control and just go after what they want. And I'm thinking to women in power, and I'm sure that there have been men that have been victimized by women in power, though perhaps from shame or fear do not speak up. But I just feel like you only hear about the men, and women clearly do have desire. But how, what what is this that the women are able to, potentially, let's say, I mean, again, I'm not saying that there aren't any women that abuse this or are predators, but it seems like they're able to hold it back more or at least show self-control, whereas the men are not. And it confuses me just like, t- w- why? Why, I think would be my question. It's a scary, It's a scary thought just that there could be potentially no trust i mean it depends on your workplace but we all know that you might even be in a christian workplace and there would be some uh, misconduct so that's something also i've been working through just the fact that this has been going on for so long and you really only hear about the men and what is it why can't they you know to to be crude i apologize but like literally keep it in their pants whereas women it seems fine like we might maybe there might be sexual harassment but i I don't think we're doing i don't know i anyway so those are some things that trying to work through trying to work through so it, it was an interesting film and i think no matter your 
political leanings, I think it's good to show that because it certainly opened up the opportunity for Time's Up and and all the, the movements that we have. So I am happy about that. And I guess you kind of have to potentially shelve any personal issues you might have with Fox News or or anything else. I do want to see the Showtime adaptation, which, funnily enough, stars Naomi Watts, who is Nicole Kidman's best friend, and Nicole Kidman was in here uh, in Bombshell, and it's called The Loudest Voice. So I do want to see that and, and see how it potentially compares. But uh, yeah, so working through some real issues that we have, and, and also just as a character and a real-life human being, what do you do with uh, those certain people? Because I think it's it's harsh to say, hey, you should have done something. I do think they should be held accountable, but I wonder to what level or extent you also show empathy to those people that, you know, there could have been some reason or such and such. Because there are several characters that are going around and I think they have like t-shirts like Team Ales and trying to almost frighten some of the, the lower level staff members into not saying anything. So gosh, what do we do with those people? So anyways, that's what I've been thinking about for a while now, for a month, I guess I said. And yeah, so food for thought for you. If you have any thoughts on that, please give me a shout out. Or if you have any uh, examples of, I guess I could probably do research and see if there are any examples of female predators in the workplace. I just feel like I've not really heard of them. Um, though we've we've seen some, certainly fictionally, um, and people probably think, well, that really is fiction. It doesn't happen because you just hear of the men all the time. In lighter news, it's actually, maybe it's not lighter news. I guess I'm leaving it off with a heavy news. We might hear of Donovan for the last time in the next episode. I have given Donovan an ultimatum. Now, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Naughty Dog. I'm not a huge fan of Survivor Horrors, but I did give The Last of Us a shot um, several years ago. If you remember, I did a special and everything and loved it as I knew I would because it's Naughty Dog and it's it's so much more than Survivor Horror. Well, Donovan got a PS4, right? Kind of manipulated him into getting one because of Marvel Spider-Man. He's loved it. His good friend Harold, as I call him, or Harry, had sent him a couple games, one of which was in fact The Last of Us. Now, I feel like that was was sent to him maybe a year ago. And Donovan, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I feel like it was a year. Also remember that I sent a book to Donovan a year ago and he has yet to read it. So Donovan has yet to pick up I'm sorry, he has yet to play The Last of Us. And so I finally decided, after prodding from me, after prodding from Harold, I've decided that unless Donovan plays The Last of Us, he will not be coming on to the episode where we do Cass and her meeting her mother, Lady Shiva. Now, if you remember in the previous episode, he was vibrating, as he said, because he was so excited about it. So this is the perfect way to get him to play The Last of Us. Now, I have issued my threat publicly. I've told Harold. Harold is also on it and, and sort of chiding him along the way. I went on the PS4. Let's see, I played some Madden on Saturday, I think it was. Checked his status. Hasn't been on in over a month. He only has three games logged, and none of those three games are The Last of Us. So, friends, you might not hear from Donovan again. Of course, he's going to be on Shipper Spotlight because that was already scheduled out, and, and that would uh, I owe him one since I, I skipped over him last year. But after that, who can say? So right now, he's not going to be on for episode, I guess it would be 189. So there you go. So if you want to be activists and shame him a bit <laughs> then you certainly may uh but if you're fine with shag maybe teaming up with me to do this particular run then i guess you can just let donovan to his own devices okay well that is it for the prologue of this episode i'm back to birds of prey i could not man it had felt so long since i had done birds of prey so i'm super excited to be back with that before i get into birds of prey there were two Issues that were coming out around the same time, Robin 78 and Robin for, uh, and Nightwing 47, and I thought I would at least talk about what Barbara's role was in both of those, because she doesn't do too much, so I don't really need to do a full review. So first, Robin 78, Three Deaths for Aircott, Part 1, Thrice Doomed, 
Tim asks Babs to reach out to the others, potentially Connor Hawk, since she since he appears in the end, though it doesn't really say specifically who the others are, for backup against this Aircat uh, or Aircot. I don't know. She doesn't have any luck and is also tired, but she doesn't want to add to Tim's plate. So but not why she's tired, we don't really know. It could be the normal thing. She's actually driving in her specialty vehicle. It also could be in regards to um, what's going on in Birds of Prey. Also, Nightwing 47, called The Quarry. Babs helps Dick track down Nightwing, a.k.a. Tad, and figure out who he really is. Then Batman appears. (laughs) This is pretty funny. And she asks what she can do for him. You know, someone's just leaning over. Can I do something for you? And he says, just checking in, I heard about the new toys. I guess he doesn't care about Dinah at that moment, or maybe even that Babs was almost kidnapped. I assume that we're around the same time. Line, but there we go. Uh, she actually pops in again while Dick is building the Nightbird and gives him the location of a payphone used to make many calls to Chief Redhorn. And she pats herself on the back, but he's not there to hear her. So that's what's going on in the Nightwing and Robin verse. But now on to the main event. And it had been so long that, of course, I knew that Dinah was kidnapped. But I was thinking, oh, yeah, they'll be reunited. But no, no, that's not what's going to happen. So we are doing Birds of Prey 22, 23, and 24. A thanks and shout out to DC Wikia for providing me with the synopses. So Birds of Prey number 22, The Hostage Heart Part 1, October 2000 is its cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, artist Jackson Geis, colorist Shannon Blanchard. Black Canary is in the hands of Blockbuster and his gang of mercenaries. She pretends to be Oracle to protect Barbara Gordon. Blockbuster explains that he needs her business intelligence to locate Gorilla City, where Blockbuster intends to find a donor for a heart transplantation. Lady Vic, Grimm, and Deathstroke are set to accompany Dinah, all of whom might have their own agenda. At least Dinah is not completely on her own as she still has radio contact with Oracle. Via parachuting, Black Canary and company land somewhere in the middle of Africa, and then it's the task of Dinah and Grimm to locate Gorilla City. Of course, Oracle is doing the actual computer work, but Dinah plays her role as the expert convincingly. However, it does not take long until the group of vigilantes is spotted by Gorilla soldiers. That goes on to Birds of Prey number 23, The Hostage Heart Part 2, November 2000 cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, artist Jackson Geis, and color Shannon Blanchard. Shortly after arriving in Africa, Black Canary, Lady Vic, Grimm, and Deathstroke come under fire from a group of guerrilla soldiers. Oracle and Ted Corder listening via radio, and at some point, the situation sounds so hopeless that Barbara is advising Dinah to surrender. Canary knocks Lady Vic out so they will get caught by the grills without resisting them. Deathstroke escapes and Dinah knows that the mercenary is following his own agenda. Nearing Gorilla City, Dinah's description of antenna towers circling the area indicates why the city is not visible on satellite images. But the effect also breaks up the radio contact with Oracle, who now thinks it's time to call for some backup. To Ted's surprise, Oracle calls Blockbuster. Meanwhile, Black Canary, Grimm, and Lady Vic are presented to Gorilla Grodd, the leader of Gorilla City. He is pretty angry about any invaders, but listens when Grimm is talking about hundreds of millions of dollars at stake if they find a suitable heart for Blockbuster. While available data on his gorillas will be checked, Grodd decides to put his prisoners into a cell, and only Deathstroke remains undetected. And this leads into our finale, Birds of Prey 24, The Hostage Heart Part 3, December 2000 cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, artist Jackson Geis, and color Shannon Blanchard. While Deathstroke is secretly fighting his way into Gorilla City and Blockbuster's medical condition is worsening, Black Canary convinces Gorilla Grodd to shut down the digital shield, masking Gorilla City from satellites, and etc. Otherwise, no deal with Blockbuster will be possible. The second the shield is down, Oracle sends the coordinates of the city to the person who is supposed to rescue Black Canary. As one of Grodd's guards has been identified as the best donor for Blockbuster's replacement heart, Grodd vows to keep Donna imprisoned until Blockbuster has paid him. But when an intruder is reported and Lady Vic accidentally mentions Deathstroke, Grodd changes his mind. He wants a digital shield up again and all humans to be killed. But Donna is able to break free from the guerrilla guards and with Deathstroke's help she even secures a replacement heart which is stored in a cooler when more guerrilla warriors are surrounding them suddenly militia appears militia capital m appears to fight them off grab dinah and leave again in a cargo plane the heart may arrive too late in the u.s though because doctors in blockbuster's house just have confirmed a death there okay so that is 
the hostage heart three-parter. The only disappointment, of course, is that Dinah and Babs have not reunited, reunited. So there we go. So when we first talk about the covers, <laughs> 22, we see a hairy situation for the Birds of Prey. Lady, Vic, Deathstroke, and Dinah and... Um, primates falling from the sky 23 can the birds of prey withstand the might of gorilla grod and we have some floating primate heads as well as gorilla grod holding on to dinah's head uh he could smash that like a little watermelon and then 24 the hostage heart conclusion and you have deathstroke and dinah in the front uh, there's the case. It looks like Dinah has dropped the case with the heart. Lady Vic is in the background. And that's interesting. Lady Vic, in the first issue, has her mask on on the cover. And in the last one, she does not, which does reflect the story within, which was a bit strange. Uh, they're, they're all interesting. If I were to pick a favorite, maybe the last one. I think I just like the colors rather than uh, just sort of the yellow background. It looks like more is actually happening, whereas the 22 and 23, it just looks like we've taken this action and put it on a background, but 24 actually has a real-life background. So I would say for those, that would be my favorite. So I'm going to go through the different issues and pull out things that I liked, and then I'll have my overall thoughts do it a little bit differently. So in the first issue, I thought it was, uh, well, it's just frankly funny, and Dixon runs with it, and that's the whole shtick, and it works. It's funny that Dinah is thought to be Oracle, because remember way back when she got that computer, and she's freaking out, like, what is it? And you don't know what it is, and then Dixon uh, scans back, and it's a computer, so clearly she's a troglodyte you know now she's she's got to be a genius and oracle says that the line better not get disconnected since dino would be in deep trouble so that's the running thing and you'd think maybe it would get old but it really doesn't with all the stuff that happens when oracle speaks for Dinah, it's fun when ted pops in as <laughs> as Dinah yells his name too uh, it's kind of a classic um earpiece mistake i think that we've seen in spy films where barbara is saying ted and then Dinah says ted because she's been repeating her uh it's a nice moment when Dinah says good night barbara i think even though they are separated, you're starting to get little pieces of, and I think for me, you know, kind of shipper excitement, not romantic shipper excitement, but familial or friendly shipper excitement that at one point they will be together and they can have this time to talk it out. But they've been separated, like they just got together and now they're separated and they're, they're going through that. So I thought that was a nice moment. I guess Babs does sleep with their communication on, at least in emergencies. I think I've thought this before, but confirmed now that we saw her wake up when when Dinah was freaking out after she jumped out of the plane in issue number two yes so here we go Vic Lady Vic sorry is suddenly not wearing her mask I'm not really sure what the purpose is of doing that it's certainly an artistic choice but Deathstroke doesn't take his mask off and it's kind of her identifier and are we trying to confuse the two blonde ladies together? I mean, that would be a way, certainly, if there were close-ups to separate Dinah from Lady Vic, but who knows? Uh, I also wonder how she's being carried like she is by the gorillas. It's kind of hard to describe it to you, but I do suggest you open it up and see how she's being kind of slung around. It's like she's being held from behind, like a reversed piggyback. I, I don't. I can't even describe it. Ted the Worrywart... <laughs> talking about the justice scouts i mean everything that ted says in this particular story is is pretty funny barbara then telling ted that dinah is safer with her than she was with ted's version of the justice league clowns is hilarious and i had to think about who she meant and guess what justice league international take that blah 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 man <laughs> Um, it's a, it's a human moment with, with Barbara telling Ted that she has to be tough. It's not, you know, an easy, happy-go-lucky kind of mission and people get hurt. And we know from her dust up with Power Girl and now this, that, yeah, Barbara can't be weak on the moment. And I think she started to learn that. I mean, you, I think you learn it early on in your career as a hero, but also the Suicide Squad situation and having someone die, not necessarily on her hands, but someone that she was close with, um, it, it, it makes sense, certainly. It was ironic and, I mean, I don't know if there's anything else to call it, but Barbara calling Blockbuster and then calling herself... <gasps> 
Cassandra, that's interesting. Um, obviously, there's that mythological connection, but I wonder if there was some sort of like I'm getting this idea and I'm going to pull it over in Backroll, the pages of Backroll. So let it be known that Barbara calls herself Cassandra as an alter ego to her alter ego. I did get thrown off with the redhead on the screen talking to Blockbuster, especially since her face is shown. And it's not like everyone looks like Barbara, but honestly, there aren't many redheads. So I thought, whoa, 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 Barbara, you are showing your identity. But it, it wasn't. So then we go into issue number three. The redhead is actually another blonde in the third issue, question mark. I don't know about that. And then, oh, no, we've got another gardener. You know how much I like him. But it's Joe, the brother of Guy. And we have Dinah. Dinah being the only person that is saved by militia. And boy, is there going to be hell to pay. I mean, how awkward that, oh, look, rescue is here. And then Dinah hops on and, well, she didn't really hop on, but she's taken and then everyone else is left. That's going to be a problem. And then at the end, Blockbuster, dead. I don't think it's that easy to get rid of the guy. I'd be super surprised. I've read past this, but I don't remember because it's been a long time. So we'll see. Okay, so some of my overall thoughts. I think the story is somewhat, somewhat anticlimactic given how the hunt for Oracle ended. You would expect there to be severe consequences for Dinah revealing that she's Oracle to the man whom she has taunted for the past couple years, but it's almost comical how the reversal actually occurs. Perhaps this was Dixon's purpose all along, making the audience feel suspense, then making them laugh at the absurdity of the team and the fact that Dinah has to be the tech guru. We've seen all the people before, basically last arc, since they are on Blockbuster's payroll, so there's no need for an introduction, which is nice, so you just sort of hit the ground running. I find it interesting that Alfred and Tim skedaddle so quickly, especially since Tim could have been a help in the upcoming mission, but I suppose it was a way to make space for Ted. Besides the main mission of getting the heart, we have some minor story points running parallel, which actually heighten the action and danger, for example, the Deathstroke situation. Dixon does a good job of mixing action, serious moments, and comical bits or dialogue, like the gorilla who was going to kill Dinah after the program ran, only to find out that he was the match, and then he was instantaneously killed, and his heart was ripped out, of course. What's most frustrating, but will probably have the biggest payoff in the end, is the fact that Dinah and Babs just met, but are separated in this arc. However, Dixon does craft several moments that bring the two together in a way that has substance and makes you unable to wait until it finally happens, which I'm hoping will be, you know, issue 25, I guess. But I guess we'll see. So overall, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 Gorilla Hearts. I have no listener emails, so I'm going to take a break then and come back and have not one but two modern Batgirl tales. So yes, I will be reviewing Batgirl 94 and 95 or 42 and 43. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Into the Unknown by Adina Menzel and Aurora. don't. There's a thousand reasons I should go about my day and ignore your whispers, which I wish would go away. Oh. Oh. You're not a voice. You're just a ringing in my ear. And if I heard you, which I don't, and spoken for, I fear. Everyone I've ever loved is here within these walls I'm sorry, secret siren, but I'm blocking out your calls I've had my adventure, I don't need something new I am afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you into the end
What do you want? Cause you've been keeping me awake Are you here to distract me? So I make a big mistake Or are you someone out there Who's a little bit like me Who knows deep down I'm not where I'm meant to be Every day it's a little harder As I feel my power grow Don't you know there's part of me that loves to Okay, we are back. So I've got the end of one arc and the beginning of another. So first up, Batgirl 42 or 94, Oracle Rising finale. Writer Cecil Castellucci, artist Carmine D. Gian Domenico, and colorist Jordi Belair. We pick up after Batgirl for the hospital with Oracle hot on her heels. Oracle knows Batgirl, so she decides to think outside the box and do what she would not do. I should clarify. Oracle knows Batgirl, so Batgirl decides to think outside the box and do what she would not normally do. At Frankie's apartment, she picks up some spare supplies and some extra costumes. She puts herself on an open channel and broadcasts her search, exposing her plan, all to throw Oracle off. After Frankenstein quote out of nowhere, Batgirl communicates with Oracle and teases her location, which Oracle guesses as Burnside Park. Back at the hospital, Jason is still looking for Babs before Oracle collects him and asks for his info on Batgirl. They, along with the terrible trio, meet at the park and see Batgirl there, only to find out it is a dummy in her Burnside costume. Hmm. Oracle knows Batgirl is far gone, but she is actually watching in a tree above them. Because Batgirl knew that Oracle would think that. Later, the team splits up with Oracle and Jason finding another dummy with an old armored gray costume at an internet cafe and the real Batgirl attacking Shark and Fox and getting info on the plan and where the hostages are. She gets to the warehouse and sees Frankie and two citizens monologuing that they are on Oracle's side and she only wants the best for Burnside and will not betray the city like Batgirl did. They are actually being physically manipulated by Oracle, connected through her with technology. Batgirl would normally go for the people first so she doesn't. Rather knocks out Vulture and rescues Jason Bard, telling herself to see the positive in him. They decide to work together when Oracle cries betrayal and scoops him up. Batgirl goes after them and Bard is dropped. Batgirl catches him, but he tells her to drop him since she can't save him and the people Burnside. He forgives her. She does some quick calculations and drops him in a, hopefully, dumpster. Oracle and Batgirl have their final confrontation on the roof, with Batgirl delivering a lightning shock to drain Oracle's power as Oracle sets off a thermal, thermal detonator, which I don't think it's called that, but it just reminded me of Star Wars, destroying the entire warehouse. Miraculously, Batgirl survives, changes into civilian gear, and even helps someone from the wreckage. She talks to Frankie and Jason and surprises the latter by giving him a surprising kiss. The issue ends with Babs understanding that she has to forget everything she knows, talking to her father and potentially mending that fence, beginning a new story, jumping into the unknown, and saying yes. Next, the maker comes for Gotham. Well, in regards to art, I think that the last page is pretty cool just with her leaping off into the unknown and the silhouettes of the building in the foreground and bats as well surrounding her. So that's what I would pick for favorite art in that issue. <sighs> what is being said 
that the Burnside costume is in a box. And Beckerl says regarding this box, I didn't think I'd wear this again. Even though the gray outfit she currently is wearing was in storage, and now she's wearing it full time. And the fact that she sort of goes through her history almost sets them up as dummies and, and they are destroyed. We really are getting rid of Burnside, are we not? And I will say that in the next issue, Frankie does not appear. So uh, I feel like... Everything I had been saying for the past six issues or wherever, however many there have been, has been confirmed with that. And we're really moving on from Burnside and having her settle in Gotham. Should Batgirl be alive when she was so close to the thermo uh, detonator? I mean, she was in the center of it. I don't think so. And I guess that's how you can explain that maybe Oracle is still alive as well. But how she's able to survive, number one, and then she has clothing nearby and she's able to change seems far, far fetched, even for a comic book. Should Jason be arrested since he did aid Oracle at one point, but he's just getting off scot-free, even though he turned back, should he not, should there not be repercussions for him helping it for a short period of time? So saying yes, right, that's actually a theater improv term, right? If you're given a situation, you don't try to change the situation. You may change the situation once you get into it, but you can't say no. You say yes. You go into it. And so this is just an interesting thought for Barbara, and I wonder how it will turn out. But, you know, I just wonder how is this different from all the other times that she said, I'm going to go on a new path, I'm going to try new things, I'm going to change who I was I mean it's the same thing just said in a different way and I'm just so tired I'm I'm tired of that whole thing happening something I mean gosh she doesn't need to say no she's been saying yes really I think she just needs to keep on keeping on and try to have something else at the forefront of her story instead of constantly trying to reinvent herself every arc why has no one asked the question about how this walking program came to be? That's something that's bothered me this entire arc. Still no questions, really. And I think Barbara kind of brought it up maybe last issue or issue before, but nothing was really answered um, because who had that program in a storage facility that kind of seems strange does doing something she wouldn't normally do equate to doing something she shouldn't do namely kissing bard i mean you can tell that she initiated it since his eyes are opened just because you're willing to try different things that might be fine but are you doing things that maybe you should not be doing and that might be detrimental to you she ignores the hostages and goes right towards what is it jason or oracle so yikes should she not have done that and i mean it was she was wrestling i think against her her better knowledge or instincts in order to do that so just questions uh not normally what she would do versus what she shouldn't do what does this mean for her future for the future setting status quo character etc are we going to see a completely overhauled barbara how much can we really change from the changes that we've had before? To a certain extent, setting does, I think, help people and change them. I don't want her to be uprooted and put somewhere new. I think Burnside was was the best time to have done that. And I think you can really only do that once. And she tried to do the travel over the world situation, but that didn't really work out either. So I guess it's, it's really the people that she's with and how she goes up against new villains and different situations so we'll see if the saying yes actually does change the story overall i think the arc was weak for an intro for a new writer it's it was not the worst that you know i've ever seen certainly i mean we all know from my previous which ones i i have not liked at all so i would say it was okay but i think it was weak especially when you're diving in for the first time and you're trying to settle yourself and build your resume and your authority with readers it went on for far too long there were a couple huge and important unexplained questions that we were left with so overall i would give this arc a seven and this particular issue i would also give a seven out of ten bats well we talk about that and then we get into 43 and after reading the first arc and then reading 43 it felt like a completely different writer now i do want to at least say that there was a change in this particular story and 
Originally, the solicitation said or spoke about Barbara's estranged mother and a new villain called Opus. After her disastrous dust-up with Oracle, Batgirl needs to regroup, but when Barbara Gordon's boss sends her to Chicago, she must confront the city's greatest threat, her estranged mother. Luckily, a dangerous new villain called Opus distracts her from that unhappy reunion by threatening to bury Batgirl in the Windy City forever. So is that the saying yes, and they were going to uproot her and put her in Chicago? I have no idea. But now, the solicitation is, after the disastrous dust-up with Oracle, Batgirl needs to regroup, but when a power villain's imagination takes the city by storm, she must go once more onto the breach of superheroism, reads the updated solicitation. So the maker has come to Gotham to claim a prize from his past, and Batgirl must stop him before she loses herself in the grip of his twisted tales come to life. City change, character change, villain change, and that might be the only way I can excuse uh, Castellucci for this rather weak and... Poor <laughs> issue that I, well, I guess I shan't spoil it. So it is Batgirl 4395. Graveyards of Words and Bones, Part 1. Writer Cecil Castellucci, artist Cian Tormi, and colorist, oh, Chris Ottemeyer. Let me begin by saying that I had some trouble figuring out what was happening. So this synopsis is my best guess, and there are also some sarcastic quips within, which I suppose I do all the time anyways. Gotham's Central Park now. Batgirl swoops in to help an older lady, Margaret Liu, from some monsters, while two people watch via a pink rip in the universe. The lady who is on some pharmaceuticals because of a terminal sickness criticizes someone and says the monsters are too generic and makes like an editor threatening to mark with a red pen. The lady runs off, the monsters run off, and Batgirl is left with the woman's things, which are a couple books. Unearth hours earlier. One of the men in the pink portal is a writer and has finished book five of the High Castle of Unearth. He is able to create anything he wants with his imagination, but he has not perfected a facsimile of his beloved Margaret Lou, that lady there, and kills any that do not displease him. His aide tells him that he can grab the real Lou from the portal the Titans left in Into the Bleed. Later that night, after the park assault, Babs is reading the book she found, because apparently she wasn't going to give it back to the lady, and picks up the rest of the series. She reads at work, again not sure how she isn't fired at this point, while ignoring Jason, who tries to get her to go out, presumably to talk about the kiss and their relationship. As she waits for a bus, she falls asleep. A portal opens and somehow focuses on Barbara and not Margaret, IDK. Babs wakes up and walks into the portal, thinking it is a dream, even even though once she walks out and Jason appears, it was obviously not a dream, but she still thinks it's a dream. IDK. For the short time she was in Unearth, she sees Jason and Dick fighting over her, mirroring the conflicted feelings she suddenly has for both men. At the station, real-life Jason leads her home and invites her up so they can talk. Meanwhile, the author and his aide ride on unicorns. I mean, that was probably the best part, to be honest. Uh, I call him, uh, by the way, I do call him the author. I recognize his name as the maker, but I'm just going to call the author. There are unicorns to, uh, to Margaret and try to convince her to come to Unearth. She is dubious until she sees the author slash maker create a castle from the wreckage of Bane's assault on Gotham. So there's tie-in twice now. Babs and Jason both see this and Jason goes to investigate because it's his job. IDK. Well, Batgirl tails him. Batgirl follows the group through the portal and is not caught, but Jason is, even though he went in second. IDK. Batgirl goes to rescue Jason and suddenly Margaret is manipulating the maker author to get him to go on a quest to make a potion to heal her and he then makes jason do this fetch quest forcing him to kill a dragon or die in the process and apparently love is on the line too idk next one does not simply walk out of unearth Okay, okay. Well, favorite art, at least I can say that. It's page eight. Barbara in the bath reading and then her various activities, ignoring Jason and things like that. Uh, it just seems like, you know, when she's in the bath reading and everything, I was like, yeah, that's absolutely what Barbara Gordon would be doing to have uh, some downtime. And then reading and ignoring Jason, those were just fun scenes. Art in general, because this is the first for Tormi, we, I suppose, were done with uh, DG on Domenico. It's okay. It's not the best art that I've seen. I think I was really getting into and, and I really like Gian Domenico's so I will miss 
his, but uh, I will get used to, I think, Tormi, and then maybe in the next issue I will put my finger on more what I think and, and sort of criticize uh, constructively. I don't even know where to begin. As I was reading Skyrim, I mean this issue, I immediately felt uncomfortable because Batgirl is not the place for this, in my opinion. Certain characters fall into certain genres. Batwoman has dark supernatural. Wonder Woman has mythical. And Batgirl usually deals with the streets and more realistic tales with some exceptions. This seemed like it would actually fit Wonder Woman better. And I don't think that it was a proper exception for Batgirl. I have so many questions and problems with this issue. I can't decide if the issue is bad because I don't like it or whether it's just bad. The opening scene is really bizarre, and I don't know why the woman is loopy now and then lucid and evil in the end. Also, how does she know it's the author maker when she's surprised to see him later on in the story? It's kind of weird. I guess it can be fine with the author, the author maker, and his hunt for a beloved. That's okay. But it could better exist in another book, however strange it is. So I guess I'm just saying the same thing that I said a moment ago. But there you go. Barbara avoids Jason, and she considers whether pursuing a relationship with him is closing a door with Dick. And this is interesting, because she hasn't thought about Dick in a while. I don't even know what Dick is doing. Isn't he Rick now? I mean, because I have been listening to... um, Chris's cornucopia of curiosities doesn't seem like why well, I guess there have been some interactions between them in that book but honestly this is the first time that he has come to her mind I like the fight between Jason and Dick but I'm not sure how it manifested since I don't think the author maker can read minds and he's not even there really uh, I guess he's the one who opened the portal if you see it from his POV but uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how someone walking around in the real world and making choices would think she was still sleeping, especially since she just encountered monsters earlier. So clearly it's not a dream. That whole thing was very bizarre. And then the author maker is looking for Margaret, but he's tracking Barbara for some reason. It's not like the age said track something personal because I think Barbara still has Margaret's wallet. I, I, I don't really know why she hasn't given that back, but it just like pops up there. And he was supposed to think about his dear one. His dear one's not Babs, it's Margaret. So that that was very bizarre. Jason suddenly thinks it's his job to track down strange phenomena in Gotham. When did he go from a security advisor to that? That I mean, that was super bizarre. <sighs> uh, the dragon love Jason stuff. It all wrapped up into one. I, I'm not really sure how that works. I guess Jason's manipulated and maybe his self-conscious behavior or feelings that maybe Babs doesn't like him or love him has thrown him into this quest. And so if he doesn't kill the dragon, then love will die and he won't be able to love again and he'll die and the dragon will die and Margaret will die and everyone. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it all works. Reading the story leaves me wondering why or what the original concept was, which we kind of know, right, from that solicitation. Why, though, Castellucci had to course correct? Was it to fit in with Bane, the Titans, and an upcoming Dick Grayson storyline? I don't know. After reading this, with its bizarre consistencies and questions and just being bizarre, period, I feel justified in thinking that there were major unanswered questions in the previous arc. And I, uh, you know, I don't often do this, but I do call upon Casalucci just to do a better job of having, I think, internal continuity and having it make sense. I think, I mean, I guess it's not even... She's the one who puts the, the 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 story down and conceives of it, but really the editor is the one that should make sure that everything flows together and there are not strange questions that are left. Ay ay ay. Uh, I'm really hoping that this is not six issues because I just don't know that I'll make it. I thought a while about this, but I'm going to have to give this a four out of ten bats because it just. Um, it was not good. It was not good. And I'm, let's wrap it up real quick, real, real quick, and then get to something substantial. Even if it's Bab's mother, I don't know. I mean, she's not my favorite character either, but I think that might have been more interesting than this, especially because apparently she's a villain. She's boss tweed in Chicago. Who knows? Okay, well, now over to Chris for his cornucopia of curiosities. 
Ah, that's like still having the couple you ship in fiction and in real life getting together on Valentine's Day with all the chocolate you could ever want, possibly seeing the Harley Quinn Birds of Prey movie together. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, bad fans. Welcome once again to the Christmas Cornucopia of Curiosity segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. Today, I'm reviewing Batman Adventures number 27, and in the Nightwatch segment, I look at Nightwing number 68. Batman Adventures number 27 was cover dated December 1994 and was cover priced at $1.50. As per usual, we have the creative team of Kelly Puckett as the writer, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. The story was reprinted in the Batman Adventures trade paperback, Volume 3, and does appear to be available on DC Comics app for $0.99. Cents. And our story today is entitled Survivor Syndrome. Act 1. Brother, Brother. Nighttime in Gotham City. A woman is attacked by three muggers, and they are suddenly confronted by a man in a Batman costume. The muggers fire their guns at the mystery man, and the would-be hero manages to stop the criminals, but he is wounded and bleeding. Meanwhile, Batman investigates the mystery man in the Batman costume and determines he's Olympic gold medal winning athlete Tom Dalton, who went missing after his wife Anne was accidentally killed in Gotham by mob crossfire. Dalton returns to his apartment and collapses, but Batman is there waiting for him. Batman patches Dalton up, takes him to the Batmobile, and drives off with him. Act 2, Call to Vengeance. In the Batcave, Batman reviews files, and we learn that Pete, the hit Wilson, was responsible for Anne's death, but he walked after trial and fled the country as Tom was deemed to be a not-credible witness. Batman tells Alfred that Tom needs a reason to find purpose in his life. Over the next two weeks at a cabin retreat, Batman trains Tom as if he plans to continue his dangerous crime-fighting actions. Batman then instructs Tom to go back to Gotham, but Rupert Thorne has instructed Wilson to return to Gotham as well. Tom spots Wilson through a diner window and goes after him. Tom catches up to Wilson and punches him, but he is knocked unconscious from behind by one of Wilson's men. Act 3, The Upper Hand. Wilson and his men take Tom to a nearly demolished building, tie him to a chair, and prepare to interrogate him. Batman arrives and starts to dispatch Wilson's men. Tom revives and breaks free from his ropes and confronts Wilson, who now recognized him from court and the shooting of his wife, and he manages to muster a sorry. Enraged, Tom attacks Wilson, but the flooring beneath them collapses. Tom hangs onto a pipe, and Wilson hangs onto Tom's pants. Tom is just about to let go, so both of them will perish, but Batman convinces Tom to take his hand. Smash cut to outside of Anne's grave, where Batman and Tom shake hands. Tom thinks Batman must have gone through a similar experience. Tom asks Batman what keeps him fighting and away from rage. Batman looks at the bat signal and says, That does. The end. My notes. Briefly, while I'm more fond of stories that pit Batman versus a costume villain, here we get a look at those affected by living in Gotham and just being a bystander at the wrong place at the wrong time. Puckett wrote the story in such a way that he relies on the art to move the narrative along. There's slightly over 20 panels here with no word balloons, but we can still grasp easily what's happening. That's effective storytelling. There's also a nice scene where Batman beats Tom in a foot race, though Tom says he holds three world records. Solid writing, solid art, and a well-depicted Batman. I will give Batman Adventures number 28, 8 out of 10 bats. Now, for everyone's favorite segment within a segment, it's Nightwatch. That's where I look at the current issue of Nightwing from a shipper's perspective. At the time of this recording, Nightwing number 68 is the current issue. Spoilers ahead. Picking up where we left off from Nightwing number 67, Dick, or is it still Rick, has several flashbacks from his time as Robin and Nightwing, including proposing to Babs. Condor Red quickly brings Dick up to speed, and Dick goes to attack Talon. Fight, fight, fight. The battle throws them off of a bridge. Talon falls in the water, and Dick is saved by Nightwing Hutch. Then we have time with Dick, or Rick, or is it just Nightwing with B? She doesn't even know what to call him. He tells her that he won't leave her, and they kiss as the sun sets. The end! Good news, Dick gets his memory back. Who didn't think this would happen eventually? And good news for Dick and B shippers. While it wasn't as hot as them in bed, this was very romantic. While the woes still continue for Dick and Bab shippers, but oh, oh wait, isn't she a thing with Jason Bard now? With the events as depicted, I am compelled to give Nightwing number 68 a spicy mild, repeat, spicy mild shipper alert. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. 
Listeners, don't forget you can hear Stella also on the Required Reading Podcast. I'd like to give a shout-out to my friends the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and the Convention Correspondence Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at BTOMBatBooks. You can also find me on the Professor Frenzy Show. That's where we talk about independent comics and whatnot. Please check it out if you're not doing so already. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please consider giving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe homepage. Thank you very much for your support. Why are Gotham City Councilmen going crazy? Who attempts to treat the Joker's mental illness? What does Harley Quinn daydream about? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these questions will be answered faster than Carolyn Coca can compromise a killer moth cozy confining cocoon. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. I actually did recently watch an anime. I destroyed this anime as in watched it very quickly it is carol and tuesday which you can find on netflix 24 episodes feel like potentially they could continue the show because they had two parts i feel like i really hope they do and apparently it's in the same continuity as cowboy bebop which is really interesting but music uh, is very much intertwined here so lots of uh, great songs and things it's been 50 years since mankind began its migration to the terraformed mars where they live in the comforts of advancement and ai carol lives in the metropolis of Alaba City, working part-time by day and playing keyboards by night. Tuesday has run away from her home in Herschel City to escape the grip of her wealthy family and instead hopes to pursue music with her acoustic guitar. After a faithful, fateful encounter, the two decide to perform music together. Up against the AI singers that dominate the music world, the two of them believe that together they can convey their feelings through their songs. Will hard work and luck be enough for the duo to create the biggest miracle that Mars has ever seen? so good i love these two um together you know as friends i think it's just a great bond and because it's it's all about music and the different people that they run up against have all have this really unique style and uh these two remind me a bit like i was gonna say iron and wine but that is not who it is um the civil wars just with really tight harmonies really well done and if you go over to angela you kind of have that pop um with the the tech behind it because people use ai for their music so carol and tuesday are are very different because they don't use any ai whatsoever and they have music competition kind of like american idol it's just oh it's so worth it and i would say and they deal with some um issues that we're dealing with too i mean there's like there are uh, trans characters in there I guess maybe that would be I was going to say asexual but I don't think so so yeah there are a couple of trans characters in there there's a lesbian in there so they have like some you know real social issues as well I guess that's not really a social issue but that you know they represent I think closer to to real life and um, no one makes a big deal about it though I guess that one character kind of had some trouble but you know being a Mars and they've got some immigration stuff as well immigration issues so it's all kind of <laughs> things from current events are are in that show a bit. So I hope it comes back. I really like it. Okay, well, finally, I've got my literature recommendations. As you remember, I am finishing the Rory Gilmore's Reading List 2020. So uh, some of these books <laughs> that I'm reading, I probably won't recommend mainly because... I might not have enjoyed them, but I will at least recommend the ones that I did like. I, let's see here, uh, Songs of the Simple Truth, the complete poems of Julia de Berjos, Berjos, a uh, Puerto Rican poet, and uh, I liked this because on the left they had the Espanol, and then on the right it had the English translation, and um, yeah, poetry, I mean, I guess it depends on what your mileage is on poetry. I did reread the Aeneid by Virgil, both for class purposes as well as the fact that um, (laughs) Tom and I did a required reading on it, which for probably the first time I felt so confident in that and have authority on it. So I do recommend checking that out, required reading. That should come out in February, I think. Uh, Arsenic and Old Lace by Joseph Kesselring, which is a play. And it's about these two elderly aunts 
who uh, take care of their nephew and uh, Teddy Boys. He's uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course. And they also have some charity work in poisoning people, basically like euthanasia, people that they think are lonely, and then they bury them in the basement. So it's it is a comedy. Oliver Twist, my last Charles Dickens. I very much enjoyed it. As you know, I'm a uh, back and forth hate love with Charles Dickens, but this I very much enjoyed. Let's see here. After running away from the workhouse and pompous beetle Mr. Bumble, Oliver finds himself lured into a den of thieves peopled by vivid and memorable characters. The artful dodger, vicious burglar Bill Sykes, his dog Bullseye, and prostitute Nancy, all watched over by cunning master thief Fagin. And then, of course, will there be a happy ending? There was. But, I, yeah, I really liked it. And then, literally today, I finished Time and, Time and Again by Jack Finney. Transported from the mid-20th century to New York City in the year 1882, Cy Morley walks the fashionable Ladies' Mile of Broadway, is enchanted by the jingling sleigh bells in Central Park, and solves a 20th century mystery by discovering its 19th century roots. Falling in love with a beautiful young woman, he ultimately finds himself forced to choose between his lives in the present and the past. Uh, So I do recommend that as well. And that's what I've been reading so far. I will have to get a couple books out from the library so I can continue my my path towards ending it. Well, that is it for this show. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backroadtheoracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And remember, the pressure is on because if Donovan does not play The Last of Us, he will not be reviewing Cassandra, which is probably good for me because then I don't have to deal with his 10 out of 10 bull crap. So there you go. So until next time, which is in fact the Shipper Spotlight number nine, Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?